Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of the second young adult novel in the Rick Brandt series, The Lost City, by Harold L. Goodwin, a.k.a. John Blaine. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. You may remember that the character of Rick Brandt was the basis for the 1960s TV show Johnny Quest. He's the son of scientist-inventor Hartson Brandt, and they live on an island called Spindrift off of New Jersey coast. The island houses a research facility, and several scientists also live there. Rick's best friend, bodyguard, and ex-marine Scotty also lives there. He's the proto-race Bannon from Johnny Quest. Some people have emailed me wondering how old Rick may be in the stories, since Johnny Quest was obviously just a kid of some indeterminate tween age, while Rick is flying his own airplane and driving his own car. My best guess, since Rick appears to be graduated from high school and is about the same age as Scotty, who lied about his age to fight in World War II several years previously, is about 19. I know that everyone in the book still treats Rick as a kid and not quite an adult, but it was an earlier time in our history when childhood was extended a bit. And 19, despite being able to fight and die for your country, was still not quite an adult. In this story, Rick and the scientists from Spindrift Island travel to India and to the Himalayas to install a communication system to bounce radar signals off the moon. The story also introduces the native boy Chata, the proto-Haji from Johnny Quest, who becomes Rick's foster brother. This is a great classic adventure story from the late 1940s that boys and girls of all ages will love, and the writing is top quality since this installment was early enough in the series that Hal Goodwin of Divers Down and Rip Foster fame was still doing the authoring. And now, The Lost City. Chapter 1. Goodbye Spindrift. Rick Brandt put down his fork and refused a second helping of roast beef. It was good, but tonight he just wasn't hungry. He looked at the faces around the big table and thought, It'll be a long time before we're all together again. He'd been away from home before, but never for almost a whole year, and never without his father. Hartson Brandt had to stay at Spindrift Island this time to handle the home end of the experiment. Rick's troubled eyes went from face to face. Next to him was Dr. Wisecarver, who would remain at home with Hartson Brandt. On the doctor's other side was Professor Gordon. He would stay at home, too. At the end of the table was his mother. She was smiling as she poured coffee for Dr. Weiss, but Rick knew that she wasn't very happy about the coming expedition. His mother was a good sport, though. She hadn't made a single objection. Julian Weiss, a mild-looking little man with just a fringe of hair on his head, was going along. Professor Weiss, Rick thought, looked more like a clerk or a bookkeeper than a noted mathematician. He seemed frail compared with the good-natured Hobart Zircon who sat next to him. Zircon was a huge barrel of a man, over six feet tall, with a bushy shock of hair and a voice that shook the walls. He was one of the country's foremost electronic scientists and almost as famous as Rick's father. It'll be fun, Rick thought, having Zircon along. Where little Julius Weiss was inclined to be a worry bird and tart in his speech, Zircon was easygoing with a keen sense of humor. Next to the big professor sat a tall, husky boy with black hair and a merry face. Rick told himself, I wouldn't want to go if Scotty weren't going along. Don Scott, called Scotty, was Rick's own age, 
but he had three years of Marine Corps experience before him. He had talked a recruiting sergeant into believing that he was of enlistment age and had fought through the South Pacific and Central Pacific campaigns. In the months that Scotty had lived on Spindrift Island, he and Rick had become close friends. Closer than brothers, Rick thought, because brothers fight with each other sometimes, and he and Scotty never did. The scrappy, humorous ex-Marine had lived on Spindrift Island ever since he had rescued Rick from Manfred Vessel's gang before the launching of the moon rocket. Vessel, a renegade scientist, had tried to destroy the Spindrift rocket in order to launch one of his own and thus win the $2 million Stone Ridge grant. Scotty had been hired as an island guard, and he had helped Rick solve the rocket mystery and trap the Spindrift Island trader who was helping Vessel. Since then, the Brants had accepted Scotty as one of their own, and he was treated like a member of the family and not as an employee. Rick's eyes went to his sister, and he smiled. Barbie Brant, a very pretty girl a year younger than Rick, was pecking at her food, a petulant expression on her face, and he knew why. Barbie had hoped all along that her parents would allow her to go on the expedition. Not until tonight had she accepted defeat. At the head of the table sat Hartson Brandt. The famed electronic scientist felt his son's eyes upon him, and he looked up and gave Rick a comradely wink. Rick swallowed hard. He didn't like the idea of going halfway around the world without his father. To him, Hartson Brandt was more than a famous scientist. He was a swell guy who could always find time for a fishing excursion, and who could put aside his own important work for a while to help his son on some gadget he was working on. Rick looked down at his plate, almost wishing that he had not asked to go. When a guy had such a swell family, it was kind of dopey to go wandering off like this. Then Barbie spoke up and broke the silence that hung so heavily over the dinner table. Rick, you won't forget to bring me a llama, will you? The laughter that followed dispelled the gloom. I think you're a little mixed up, Toehead, Rick replied. You're thinking of llamas with two L's? They're South American animals. A llama is a Tibetan priest, and I don't think one of them would want to come back with us as a souvenir for a girl. Not even a pretty one, Zircon added. Barbie rewarded the big professor with a smile. Well, she said to Rick, don't forget to bring me something. Hartson Brandt rose from the table. Let's take our coffee out to the sun porch, he invited. The family and the scientists carried their coffee cups out to the big porch, last in now because it was still early spring. Beyond the porch, the seaward end of Spindrift Island fell away to the surf below. To the right, the long line of the laboratory buildings loomed against the night sky. And from the seaward side, a massive frame was silhouetted against a full moon. Hobart Zircon pointed to it. Symbolic, he boomed. A full moon and the radar antenna. A good omen, Hartson Brandt agreed. I think we can take it as such. Rick looked at the big antenna, or bedspring as it had been dubbed by Scotty. A long time from now, that intricate frame would send radar pulses hurtling toward the moon to be reflected back to the other side of the earth, where he, Scotty, Zircon, and Weiss would be waiting. Barbie spoke up. I don't see why they have to go all the way to Tibet to do this. Why can't you bounce your old message back to, to Whiteside? 
Whiteside was the little town nearest them on the New Jersey mainland. The scientist smiled and Hartson Brandt explained, It wouldn't quite suit our purposes, Barbie. He pointed to the moon. That piece of green cheese up there is the top of a triangle. Spindrift Island is another corner. We've chosen a plateau in Tibet for the third corner because it's just about the most distant point we could find. And for many other good, sound scientific reasons, Julius Weiss added. No, my dear, I'm afraid Whiteside just wouldn't do. If it were Whiteside, said Barbie, I could go too. Oh, why did I have to be a girl? She moaned. You wouldn't like to bet, Scotty said. Nothing but rocks and mountains and snow. I doubt we'll see a great deal of snow, Hobart Zircon remarked. We've chosen the time of year when travel to Tibet is easiest. We'll see snow, of course, on the mountaintops, but I don't think we'll have to wade through any. Rick sat back quietly, listening to the conversation. He didn't feel much like talking. He didn't want to acknowledge that gnawing feeling inside of him was homesickness, but he knew it was. Homesickness already? He was hoping the feeling would leave once they were underway. Scotty was saying, I'm dense, I guess, but I still don't know just what it'll prove, even if we do bounce a message off the moon from here to Tibet and back. It's just another attempt to make the world smaller, Scotty, Hartson Brandt said. At present, worldwide communications are very poor, at least in remote places. Telegraph wires aren't practical over two great distances, and radio depends too much on local atmospheric conditions. But we can use the moon for a relay point and bounce messages from place to place without interference. We may solve the communications problems of the Earth. At least the International Communications Association thinks so, Dr. Weiscarver said. They're backing the experiment by setting up listening points all over the world. It's a pretty important thing, son. I guess it is, Scotty acknowledged. Mrs. Brandt rose. It's getting late. Hadn't you all better finish your packing? I'll have a snack ready when you're through. The gathering broke up, and Rick and Scotty went upstairs to their rooms. Not much talking on your part tonight, Rick, Scotty commented. I don't feel like it, he admitted. With you, it's different. You saw the world when you were in the Marines. But I've never been so far from home before. I feel the same way, Scotty answered. Didn't much matter before, because I didn't have any foes. Well, but now... His voice trailed off, and he went into his own room. Nothing remained but their personal gear. All the equipment for the experiment had been crated and sent off to New York. All their trail stuff was packed, including army-type rations, sleeping bags, and anything else they might need. The workbench Rick had built into one wall of his room was opened, and he went to it, picking up the compact little gadget that lay there. He hefted it in his hand. Might as well take it along. If things get dull, I can do a little work on it, he mused. Around the walls were other gadgets. He disconnected them sadly, wondering when they would be used again. There was his automatic window closer and heat control his automatic snack bar for making sandwiches when the rest of the family was asleep, the old leather armchair he had wired up for reading. People meeting Rick Brandt for the first time found it hard to believe that he already had an excellent grasp of the electronic sciences. He looked as though he might have a better acquaintance with a football field or a tennis court than an electronic laboratory. 
because he was so tall for his age and huskily built. He had brown hair and brown eyes, and his face was always tanned, even in winter, since he was outdoors so much. His personal experiments and the work he did as an apprentice to his famous father had never interfered with his love of sports. While he was at work with a screwdriver, Barbie came in and sat on the bed, her pert face thoughtful. Rick looked up and smiled at her. What's the matter, Toehead? Still sulking because you can't come with us? Oh, Pooh, who wants to go to Tibet anyway? retorted Barbie. But she was in no mood for teasing tonight. Rick, you and Scotty will be careful, won't you? she asked soberly. Sure, sis, Rick replied gently. Don't worry about us. But I will worry. I'm afraid for you, Rick. For us? Don't be silly, Rick returned affectionately. It wasn't like Barbie to worry. She usually had supreme confidence in the ability of Rick and Scotty to take care of themselves. She bounced off the bed. Gosh, I almost forgot. I have packages for both of you. Scotty came in as she left. What's up with Barbie? She forgot something, Rick told him. In a moment, Barbie was back with two packages, both wrapped in heavy oiled paper and sealed with tape. Scotty's was about six inches square and 18 inches long. Rick's was a square about 12 inches on the side. Handing the packages to the boys, she said, You're not supposed to open them until the 4th of July. Rick held his up to his ear and shook it. It didn't rattle. Aren't you going to tell us what's in them? No, Barbie answered. You'll open them up on the 4th, and then you'll think of us back here. We're going to think of you anyway, Scotty assured her. Both of us are a little homesick already. Barbie's blue eyes suddenly filled with tears. She swallowed hard and said, Don't forget to be careful, please. Rick was at her side. Hey, Toehead, what is this? I'm I'm afraid. My, my intuition tells me something awful is going to happen. Rick's eyes met Scotty's across the top of the girl's golden head. We'll be careful, Scotty promised seriously. Sure, sis, Rick said. And thanks for the packages. We'll send something nice from Bombay. Barbie brightened. Really, Rick? What? I don't know yet, he replied, grinning. Maybe a white elephant. Guess it'll be more fun if you surprise me, she said gravely. And then with a smile for both of them. I'd better go help Mom. Rick started checking over his camera case as she went out the door. When her rapid footsteps had retreated down the hall, he looked up at Scotty and shook his head. Funny. It's not like Barbie to be afraid. She doesn't usually let her imagination run away with her. Well, she did this time, Scotty replied. Rick counted film packs thoughtfully. Barbie had a lot of wild ideas, but she had sense, too. She didn't ordinarily jump at shadows. Well, maybe her hunch is right, he said. Maybe this trip isn't going to be as easy as it looks. Later, as they walked across the orchard, Rick and Scotty looked around at all the old familiar things, each wondering when they would see them again. Barbie held tight to Rick's hand and asked questions, while dismal, Rick's shaggy pup raised a head and then back to their sides. Rick, why aren't you going on a big ship like the Queen Mary or something? An old freighter will be awful. Not so bad, Rick said. We'll be the only passengers. 
Dad fixed passage so that we could stay with the equipment. We couldn't have done that on a regular passenger ship. Besides, Scotty added, this ship goes right to Bombay. They came out of the orchard onto the grassy strip on the seaward side of the island. In the moonlight, the slim shape of a little airplane gleamed silver. A lump came into Rick's throat. One of his true loves was his Piper Cub airplane. It was strange to think that he wouldn't be flying again for almost a year. The Cub would be used, though. Professor Gordon had been a Navy pilot before he turned to science, and he'd be doing the island errands. Rick turned away from the Cub and led the way to the laboratory building. He looked around, seeing the workbenches, the big racks of their complex amplifiers, the door to the power room, the door to the radiation room. But he didn't stop to examine anything closely. He headed for the stairs that led to the roof. It was up here that Professor Weiss had watched the moon rocket through his telescope, and now it was up here that the big radar antenna rested. Rick went over to its shadow. Barbie and Scotty walked silently beside him. They looked over Spindrift Island. There were lights in the house and lights in the farmhouse back on the north side, but the rest of the island was dark. Rick saw the gleam of the dismantled rocket launcher in Pirate's Field and the darkness of the woods beyond. He looked past the house toward the boat landing from which they would leave in the morning, and a lump came up into his throat again. Dismal brushed against his leg and whined for attention. Rick bent over and patted him, and the shaggy pup rolled over and played dead. This was his only trick, and he performed it at every opportunity. Let's go back to the house, said the boy gruffly. Chapter 2. Sabotage The John S. Madigan wasn't the last word in comfort, but it was adequate. The four travelers shared the only passenger cabin, Rick and Scotty sleeping in the two upper bunks, the professors taking the lowers. Rick was conscious of a growing excitement as the ship breasted the Atlantic swells, and they reviewed the myriad details of the expedition. Everything had been worked out in advance, of course, but the two professors spent considerable time rechecking their data, and Scotty and Rick were given the task of rechecking supplies just to be sure they had everything. In such a major undertaking, even little details were too important to be forgotten. Rick ran to Professor Zircon one day. Sir, I can't find the maps on any of the lists. We'll need maps, won't we? It's all been arranged. Zircon told him. Our maps are being prepared by the Asiatic Geographical Union in Bombay. They have experts who know Tibet intimately. We'll pick up the maps there. Julius Weiss looked up from the volume he was studying. Rick, have you gone down to look at the equipment today? Why, no, sir, I haven't. Please do, Weiss said querulously. We must keep a careful watch on it. Why, Julius? Zircon bellowed. How would I know? I just think it would be a good idea, the little professor replied testily. I'll look at the stuff, Rick promised. Weiss had been growing more and more worried about details. He had asked Rick and Scotty to recheck the supplies several times, finally looking at them himself. What is that you're reading, sir? Rick asked. The volume interested him. It was written in a script he had never seen before. I am just brushing up on my Tamil. Weiss replied. Zircon grunted. 
We won't be in the Tamil country, Julius. Tamil is spoken largely in the south of India and in Ceylon. I just enjoy studying, Wise said shortly. Zircon winked at Rick as the little professor went back to the book. Languages were one of Weiss's hobbies, his most important hobby, in fact. As soon as he heard a new tongue spoken, he had to try to learn it. Rick knew that he spoke French, German, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese with native fluency. Zircon had told him that Weiss also spoke quite good Mandarin Chinese, Mongol, Malay, and Japanese. He also knew a smattering of strange local dialects like the Tagalog of the Philippines. As Rick went out on deck where Scotty was taking a sunbath, he shook his head and grinned. It was hard to imagine little Julius Weiss as an adventurer who had covered the Pacific in his youth, but he had Zircon's word for it that Weiss had been quite the traveler. Scotty squinted up at him as he approached. Relax, friend. Stretch out. Take advantage of the ultraviolet rays. You're a vegetable, Sergeant Scott, Rick said. You're a turnip. You just lie still and get warm in the sun. Don't you realize this is a great adventure? Come on, get up here. Look at the sea. I saw a wave once, Scotty murmured comfortably, and he rolled over onto his stomach. Now go away. I hate people who aren't lazy like me. Rick left him to his slumbers and went up on the bridge. Captain Marks greeted him cordially. Getting restless, son? We're off the Azores right now. He indicated the position on the chart. Won't be long before we're steaming into the Mediterranean. I always thought going to sea was exciting, Captain Marks, but it's just sailing on and on day after day. The scenery never changes, Rick remarked. The captain smiled. Oh, I don't know. Scenery isn't so much. It's the unexpected that makes for adventure, I'd say, and there's plenty of that on the sea. Plenty of it in Tibet, too, I guess, Rick said. The first officer came up to consult with the captain, so Rick left, still feeling restless. The days were growing monotonous. He passed the radio room and glanced in and saw the racks of equipment, and then an idea hit him. His little gadget. Why not pass a few hours working on it? He had to think a minute before he could remember where it was. He'd put it in with the trail gear in one of the wooden crates. It was down in the hold. Well, Professor Weiss had asked him to look over the equipment anyway. He could kill two birds at once. He went down the accommodation ladder to the next deck and made his way forward through the passages till he came to the huge watertight door of the hold. It was dogged down. He had to struggle with some of the heavy metal fastenings before he could open it. Then he stepped inside and fumbled for the light switch. The light snapped on and he saw boxes of goods stacked all around him. He knew where his own equipment was. He had checked off the crates as they were stowed. He made his way to them, sniffing in the stale air a sharp, acrid odor. He reached the first of the cases stenciled Stone Ridge Expedition and noticed that the odor was stronger and that part of the stencil was obliterated by a brown streak. That's funny, he muttered. Something's leaking. Then his eyes opened wide as he saw the box which had been placed carefully on the very top of the pile. It was on its side. He ran to the door of the hold, yelling at the top of his lungs. Help! Somebody! Just outside the door was a fire extinguisher of the soda and acid type. Working furiously, he unscrewed the ring top and tossed it aside. The bottle of acid was in its pivoted cradle. He lifted it out and placed it cautiously on the deck. 
Then he took the big metal container of soda solution and lugged it back to the equipment as fast as he could. Holding the container high over his head, he let the solution cascade down over the boxes. Instantly, there was a sputter, and the solution foamed in a great yellow mass. The container was empty now. Rick ran for another and met a crew member who had just come in answer to his yell. Get the captain, Rick shouted. What's up? the sailor demanded. Acid, Rick yelled at him. There's acid all over our equipment. Chapter 3. Fire in the Hold Under Captain Mark's efficient direction, the acid was quickly neutralized with soda solution rushed from the galley. Then, as seamen set to work cleaning up the mess, the captain turned to Rick, Scotty, and the professors. Now, he said, let's get down to cases. Where did that acid come from? It's battery acid, sir, Rick answered. We had a carboy of it for our batteries, the ones we used for heating the tube filaments. Professor Zircon had been examining the empty container. The acid bottle was firmly sealed and placed upright in this weighted box, he explained. It would have been almost impossible for it to spill. Even if it had fallen on its side, the acid wouldn't have run out. But it did, Julius Weiss remarked tartly. How can you explain that? He was examining the crates one at a time, anxiously searching for signs of damage. We will have to rip these crates open. Captain Marks bent over and examined the acid container. Presently, the skipper straightened up. It would be hard for it to tip over, he admitted, but there's no other answer. The crates must have been badly piled. My guess is that they shifted a bit, just enough to tip that crate over. But how could it have come unstoppered by itself? Rick objected. The skipper shrugged. Very possibly it wasn't as tightly sealed as you think. Fortunately, you found it before much damage was done. I'll lend you a man to help inspect the crates, and I can supply another carboy of acid from our own stores. He motioned to a thick-set man nearby. Chips, bear a hand here. To Zircon, he added. This is Meekin, the ship's carpenter. He'll help you with the crates. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to get back to the bridge. Julius Weiss was alternately trying to get into the stacked crates and wringing his hands. I'm sure something is ruined, he exclaimed. If the acid reached the cathode units, Hobart, I'm afraid we're ruined. Ruined, I tell you. Nonsense, Zircon bellowed. Rick found the trouble too soon for there to be much damage. He turned to the boy. That was fast thinking, using the soda from the extinguisher. Rick blushed and turned to lend a hand in shifting crates. He hadn't even stopped to think about it. He just acted instinctively. Scotty helped him with a large crate and spoke softly so the professors couldn't hear. What do you think? Think about what? The acid. Does it look like an accident to you? Rick gave the crates a final heave. What are you driving at, Scotty? It, it has to be an accident. Just the same, there was an uneasy feeling growing in him. Why does it have to be an accident? Scotty insisted. You got into the hold. Anybody else could have, too. But why would they? This isn't like the moon rocket, Scotty. Nobody could gain anything by trying to stop the experiment. 
And people don't do things without reasons. But the acid container was designed specially so it wouldn't tip over, Scotty persisted. Well, yeah, but if the pile shifted, it wouldn't tip over. It would just slide down. Scotty had put into words the very thing that had been at the back of Rick's mind. It was true. The wooden container that held the acid bottle was heavily weighted at the base. It would take a serious effort to tip it. I can't imagine why anybody would want to sabotage the equipment, Rick said thoughtfully. I think maybe some sailor was working down here and tipped it over accidentally, and the acid just started pouring out and he got scared and beat it. Maybe, Scotty replied doubtfully. With the help of Meekin, the professors were already probing into the crates to see if any acid might have seeped through into the equipment. In one or two spots, they found marks where the powerful acid had started to eat into the aluminum cases that housed the delicate radar gear. But by applying the fire extinguisher so quickly, Rick had prevented the acid from eating all the way through. He and Scotty bore a hand to lift one particularly heavy crate that was nothing but a framework of boards. Inside, clearly visible, was a cast aluminum pyramid that looked like an oversized automobile jack. Well, the stuff didn't touch the antenna base, he said. Under the professor's direction, Meekin tore open the crates and then nailed them back up again. He was a sullen man of middle age who evidently resented having to do this extra work. Rick searched until he found the box which contained his gadget. The box was hinged and closed on the snap lock. He opened it, disclosing neatly packed sleeping bags, windbreakers, rain hoods, ponchos, and similar stuff to be used on the trail. Under the jackets was the little aluminum box he wanted. He tucked it into his pocket. The last traces of acid had been neutralized and the inspection was at an end. Rick joined Scotty and the professors as they walked out of the hole, leaving the carpenter to lock the door behind them. How'd you happen to arrive at just the right moment, Rick? Zircon demanded. Rick produced the metal box and held it up. I was after this. Weiss peered at it in the dim light below decks. What is it? The most important radio device is the vacuum tube, Rick boasted jokingly. He put it back into his pocket. I'll show you when I've done a little more work on it. As they came back on in deck, Weiss shook his head. Oh, Bart, I don't like this. It's a bad start having that container tip like that for no reason. I've been afraid something like this would happen. Baseless fears, Julius, Zircon snorted. I'm surprised at you. Not baseless, Weiss contradicted. We have overlooked necessary detail, Hobart. We have been remiss. I am sure of it. What details have we overlooked? Zircon demanded. Our equipment has been checked time and again. Our travel permissions are arranged. The passports are in my pocket. Our maps are being checked in Bombay at this moment. What details, Julius? We haven't arranged for guides, Weist declared triumphantly. Certainly not. Hartz and Brandt discussed that. We decided it would be wiser and less expensive to pick up a native guide at the Tibetan frontier. The two professors walked toward their cabin, still wrangling. Rick and Scotty stopped at the rail. Rick shook his head. Professor Weiss is as full of worries as my Aunt Jennifer. I didn't think he'd be like this at all. He has a lot on his mind, Scotty said. This experiment means everything to him. Remember, he worked out all the transmission details. I know, but he shouldn't worry about every little thing, 
He'll worry until we take down the message from Spindrift on July 10th. Now, come on, guy. Let's see that super invention of yours. Rick grinned. Well, super's not the word. It's positively atomic. He took the metal box from his pocket. It was tiny, not larger than two cigarette packages. He opened the lid and passed the box to Scotty. Inside was an intricate arrangement of wires, resistors, tubes, and condensers. My gosh, look at all those tubes. They're no bigger than, than acorns, Scotty exclaimed. Well, that's what they're called, acorn tubes. What's it for, though? Rick eyed the neat little set proudly. Well, I read in a paper a while back about a kid who rigged up a receiving set in his hat. In his hat? Well, helmet. You know, one of those sun helmets? So I thought I'd go him one better and see if I could figure out a transceiver. A what? A set that transmits as well as receives. Then we could each have one and we could send messages back and forth, see? Yeah, Scotty marveled. But why should we send messages back and forth? We're going to be together all the time. This wouldn't work at long range, would it? Uh, don't get all practical on me, Rick replied. I was just figuring it out for fun. We might find a use for it someday. The skipper came by on his way down from the bridge and stopped. You hungry boys? Chow is down. Well, that's for me, Scotty said. As they fell in step, Rick asked, Captain, was anybody in the hold earlier today? The skipper shook his head curiously. Not to my knowledge, why? I just wondered if maybe the acid was knocked over accidentally by somebody who went down there. I'll ask the mates, but I doubt that anyone was in the hold. I think your acid spilled over when the crate shifted. Improper stowage caused it. If I find the man responsible, he'll regret it. I will not tolerate carelessness on my ship. Rick let the matter drop, but he still wasn't satisfied. Shifting cargo was just too pat of an answer. Still, there was no other explanation. He'd have to accept it. Fortunately, no damage had been done. After dinner, he went to work on the little radio unit, working with such delicate tools as a pair of tweezers and a jeweler's screwdriver. Scotty sat on the opposite bunk, cleaning his rifle with loving care. To the ex-Marine, weapons were holy things. He inspected the rifle every day, running an oily rag through the barrel and wiping down the mechanism. Someday you're going to take one of those things apart and not be able to put it back together again. Rick teased. Scotty grinned good-naturedly. Stick to your gym cracks and leave the shooting irons to me, son. He held the rifle barrel up to the light and peered through it. Like a mirror, he said with satisfaction. It was a beautiful weapon, a present to Scotty from Hearts and Brandt. Scotty had added a telescopic sight. With that and his marine training, plus the high power of the rifle, it was a three hundred three caliber. He could break a dinner plate at better than 500 yards. Rick had seen him do it. Hope we're not going to need that, he commented. We won't, Scotty said optimistically. But maybe I'll get to shoot at a wild goat or maybe a panda. When Zircon and Weiss came in, the boys climbed up to their bunks. Scotty put his rifle into his canvas case and Rick put his little radio set on the cabin desk. They undressed quickly and got into bed. In a little while, Zircon snapped out the lights and there was silence in the cabin. The ship pitched slightly to the swell, a slow, soothing motion that made Rick's eyelids droop. Just before he dozed off, he asked sleepily, Scotty, why would anybody want to stop the experiment? 
Hobart Zircon answered for Scotty, his voice loud in the darkness. Nobody would, Rick. Go to sleep and stop worrying about it. Yes, sir, Rick said. He punched his pillow into a more comfortable shape, and after a while he slept. It was shortly after midday of the next day that Rick made another discovery. The morning had been spent on the foredeck, sunbathing and chatting with the professors and Scotty. Not until after lunch did he feel bored and decide to go back to his work on the radio set. But it wasn't on the cabin deck where he had left it. He hunted through the cabin, through their luggage, even under the bunk mattresses. Then he hurried out to Scotty and the professors who were leaning against the rail. Did any of you take my radio unit? There were three negative answers. Well, somebody did. I left it in the cabin and now it's gone. You undoubtedly mislaid it, Professor Weiss said. No, sir. I looked everywhere. It's not here. You left it on the desk, Scotty remembered, just before we went to bed last night. It'll turn up, Rick, Zircon boomed. Nobody would steal it. It wouldn't do them any good anyway. It doesn't work, Rick replied. He left his friends and hurried to the bridge. Captain Marks greeted him cordially. Something on your mind? You look worried. My radio unit is gone, Rick blurted out. He told the skipper about it, adding, It must have been taken. It's not in the cabin. Captain Marks rubbed his chin. You're sure about that? I don't want to start something and then have it turn up onto your bunk. I searched every inch of that cabin, sir. The skipper shook his head. I hate to think we have a thief aboard. I'll have the first mate talk to the crew, one at a time. It would do no good to search the ship. There are too many places it could be hidden. You say it's of no value. Well, not to anybody but me, sir. It's just a gadget I was working on. At supper that night, Captain Marks reported, Not a thing doing, Rick. The crew denies all knowledge of it. I'm afraid it's gone for good, unless it just happens to turn up somewhere. I put a lot of work in on it, sir, Rick lamented. Now I'll have to wait until we get home before I can start again, because we haven't any parts here. Never mind, Zircon soothed him. We have a nice big radar transmitter for you to play with until we get back. Rick looked at him sharply and saw the twinkle in the big professor's eyes. It's not the same thing. This is my pet project. The radar transmitter is yours. You can have a share, Zircon suggested. Rick fell silent, but the loss of his toy rankled. Anyway, he thought, whoever stole it won't get much out of it. It was a long way from being finished. In the excitement of passing through the Mediterranean, the loss of the little transceiver was forgotten by everybody but Rick. When they stopped at Port Said to refuel the ship, the boys had their first look at a foreign port. But there was no chance to go ashore, so they had to content themselves with watching from the deck. The professors, both experienced travelers, had been in the colorful port before and didn't think much of it. They said we didn't miss much, Rick said regretfully as the ship steamed between the narrow banks of the Suez Canal. But I wish we could have gotten ashore for a little while at least. The passage through the canal passed without any incident, and the freighter plowed into the Indian Ocean. The heat was like a wet, heavy blanket now, and sleep almost impossible. But the party looked forward eagerly to Bombay. Can't be soon enough, Scotty remarked as they climbed into the bunks one night. I want to see India. Same here, Rick answered. He swung into the upper bunk, careful not to step on the professor below him. 
He stretched out only a sheet over him and soon drifted off into a dreamland people with natives who wore cloth of gold trappings and turbans and where elephants roamed the streets at will. Then suddenly, he jerked awake and sat bolt upright, his ears filled with the ear-splitting clang of the alarm bell. All four of the party leaped off their bunks, and Zircon snapped on the lights just as a third officer ran by. Fire! he shouted. Fire! All hands! Fire in the forward hold! <laughs>